0: You are listening to Radical with David Platt, a weekly podcast with sermons and messages from pastor, author, and teacher David Platt. If you have a Bible, and I hope you do, let me invite you to open with me to James chapter 2. I want us to start in verse 14, where we started this journey two weeks ago, looking at faith in action, particularly as it relates to caring for the poor. And I want us to start in verse 14, get to verse 25 and 26, which is where we're going to camp out today in these last two verses of James chapter 2. i will start in verse 14. What good is it, my brothers, if a man claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save him? Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to him, go, I wish you well, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about its physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith, I have deeds. Show me your faith without deeds, and I will show you my faith by what I do. You believe that there is one God? Good, even the demons believe that and shudder. You foolish man, do you want evidence that faith without deeds is useless? In the same way, was not even Rahab the prostitute considered righteous for what she did when she gave lodging to the spies and sent them off in a different direction? As the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without deeds is dead. Now you might have verse 26 underlined. We looked at this two weeks ago. This is the main theme of the second half of James chapter 2. It's mentioned three different times. Verse 17, faith by itself without action is dead. Verse 20. Faith without deeds is useless. Verse 26 faith without deeds is dead. And what James has done is he's given us an example, illustration of this in Abraham. And then he says, in the same way, which shows us, he's not giving us a new truth here, he's giving us another illustration of the same truth. In the same way, Rahab. Now, Rahab's story is probably a little bit less familiar to us than Abraham's story was. So that's why I want you to go with me to Joshua chapter 2 real quickly here. And I want us to get the picture of Rahab in Joshua chapter 2. Verse 1. Here's the setup. God's people, the people of Israel, are on the brink of the promised land. God is about to lead them to take that land for His glory. The first major city in the land is Jericho, And so Joshua sends out some spies, a couple of spies, to go into the land, specifically Jericho, and scout it out. So that's where we pick up in Joshua chapter 2, verse 1. Then Joshua, son of Nun, secretly sent two spies from Shittim. Go, look over the land, he said, especially Jericho. So they went... And entered the house of a prostitute named Rahab and stayed there. Now, side note, real quick, kind of a shady beginning to Joshua chapter 2, but the reality is, during that day, it was common for those whose profession, so to speak, was what Rahab was doing, would also serve as an innkeeper. This is a, a house that would be on the outskirts of town that people would stay in as they, would, they were going through. So just get that out on the table. Verse 2 The king of Jericho was told, Look, But she had taken them up to the roof and hidden them under the stalks of flax she had laid out on the roof. So the men set out in pursuit of the spies on the road that leads to the fords of the Jordan. And as soon as the pursuers had gone out, the gate was shut. Before the spies lay down for the night, she went up on the roof and said to them, I know that the Lord has given this land to you and that a great fear of you has fallen on us. So that all who live in this country are melting in fear because of you. We've heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea. For you, when you came out of Egypt and what you did to Sihon and Og, the two kings of the Amorites east of the Jordan, whom you completely destroyed, when we heard of it, our hearts melted and everyone's courage failed because of you. For the Lord your God is God in heaven above and on the earth below. Now then, please swear to me by the Lord that you will show kindness to my family because I have shown kindness to you. Give me a sure sign that you will spare the lives of my father and mother, my brothers and sisters, and all who belong to them, and that you will save us from death. Our lives for your lives, the men assured her. If you don't tell what we are doing, we will treat you kindly and faithfully when the Lord gives us the land. So she let them down by a rope through the window, for the house she lived in was part of the city wall. Now she had said to them, "'Go to the hills so the pursuers will not find you. Hide yourselves there three days until they return, and then go on your way.' The men said to her, "'This oath you have made us swear will not be binding on us unless, when we enter the land, you have tied this scarlet cord in the window through which you let us down, and unless you have brought your father and mother, your brothers and all your family into your house. If anyone goes outside your house into the street, his blood will be on his own head. We will not be responsible.' As for anyone who is in the house with you, his blood will be on our head if a hand is laid on him. But if you tell what we are doing, we will be released from the oath you made us swear. Agreed, she replied. Let it be as you say. So she sent them away, and they departed, and she tied the scarlet cord in the window. When they left, they went into the hills and stayed there three days until the pursuers had searched all along the road and returned without finding them. When the two men started back, they went down out of the hills, forded the river, and came to Joshua, son of Nun, and told him everything that had happened to them. They said to Joshua, the Lord has surely given the whole land into our hands. All the people are melting in fear because of us. Now there's, there's so much to unpack in Joshua chapter two. But the question I want us to think about right now is, why in the world is James in the New Testament bringing up this prostitute from the Old Testament. This is where I want to give you a glimpse of radical Rahab. I want you to think about what is going on in this story in her life. First of all, Rahab was a recipient of scandalous grace. I I don't mean immoral grace. I mean shocking grace jaw-dropping, what in the world is going on kind of grace. You come back to James 2 and you see this contrast between, think about it, Abraham and Rahab. Patriarch of the Jewish nation. A prostitute in a Gentile nation. A wealthy man of the highest social order. A woman of the lowest social order. A noble man. A common citizen. It's the kind of thing that makes you wonder, Abraham and Rahab, and you can almost hear it in James's voice in verse 25, in the same way was not even Rahab the prostitute considered righteous for what she did? Let me show you one other place, show you one other place, Matthew chapter one. If this is not circled in your Bible, it needs to be circled in your Bible. It may have been from what we've looked at before here in Matthew chapter one. But remember when Ruth, where we were talking about how God was taking a Moabite woman and grafting her into his family? And we see Ruth's name in the line that leads to Jesus in Matthew chapter 1? Well, let me show you another name here in Matthew chapter 1. This is the lineage of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Verse 5. Matthew writes, Salmon the father of Boaz, whose mother was who? Rahab. Like circle Rahab there. Boaz the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. You catch that. Rahab was Ruth's mother-in-law. What kind of family tree is this? Moabite women? Prostitutes from Jericho? Oh, brothers and sisters, this is really good news. That the Holy God of the universe would look beyond rampant sinfulness and draw the most unlikely of persons into his line, into his family. It is the only reason why any of us are in this room this morning. Because the God of the universe has looked past the filth of sin in your life, in my life, and he has adopted you and me as his sons and daughters, heirs of his kingdom. That is totally scandalous grace it's shocking it's jaw dropping she was a recipient of scandalous grace second she feared and revered the sovereign god she feared and revered the sovereign god did you hear what rahab said to the spies in joshua 2:11 she said when we heard about What has happened to you because of your God? Our hearts were melted and everyone's courage failed because of you. For the Lord, your God, is God in heaven above and on the earth. Now catch this. All Rahab had was some hearsay, a little bit of knowledge. She had heard. She'd heard about how the people of God had walked through the middle of the Red Sea on dry ground. The middle of the sea on dry ground. And she'd heard about how they had defeated these kings. And she said, I know about your God. A little bit of knowledge about God, but she believed it. Your God is God above heaven and earth. Your God is sovereign. She knew God was sovereign over all things. She knew that she was accountable to him. She knew that judgment was coming upon her and her land under this God. And this is key. We're about to think about what Rahab was risking in what she did and what it cost her to do what she did in Joshua chapter 2. But before we even get there, I want us to see why she was risking it all in Joshua chapter 2. It's because she believed God. And when you believe God, For who he is, God in heaven above the earth. When you believe this God, then you are willing to risk it all. It's the picture in Abraham. Why would he be willing to sacrifice his only son? Because he believed God. Why would Rahab be willing to risk her life? Because she believed God. It is faith that produces radical obedience. She feared and revered the sovereign God. Third characteristic, As a result of this, recipient of grace, fearing God, she risked it all for the spread of his glory. I want you to think with me about what Rahab was risking there in Joshua chapter 2. If the king of Jericho knew that these men were still in her home and she was harboring spies... If found out, she would have been executed immediately. And likely her family along with her. Traitor. Treason. No question. Rahab was putting her life on the line. Risking it all. This is why James, it's why the author of Hebrews in Hebrews chapter 11, sets up Rahab, the prostitute, as a hero of faith. Why? Because she was willing to risk everything trusting God without hesitation, without reservation, and without qualification. The question I want to put before us this morning is where are the women of faith like that in this room? Where are the women of faith who are willing to risk it all, everything that is is dear to you, to put it on the line in trust, radical trust of God? Where are the men of faith in this room who are willing to risk it all in obedience to the Word of God for the spread of the glory of God, who are willing to do that which goes against the culture around them, that which makes no sense, that which risks everything because you believe in God? Are we as a church as the people of God thousands of years after Abraham was willing to sacrifice his son and thousands of years after Rahab risked her life on the line are we as a church willing to take risks in obedience to the word of God for the spread of the glory of God? This is the story of redemptive history. Men and women who have passed down the baton to us we cannot sit here In comfortable faith, listening to the word, but not risking our lives to obey it, just like those who have gone before us have. Now, all of that leads to verse 26, uh, this last statement. As the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without deeds is dead. And I want you to follow with me here. This is more important than foster care. And it is more important than radical experiment or anything like it for just the next couple moments, this last couple of moments we have we're gonna go through each one of these pretty quickly but I want to speak, if I could I would love to do this individually with every single person in this room every man, woman, student in this room do you know that you are right before God. Do you know that you have been declared right before God? Not the person beside you, in front of you, behind you. I want to make sure, based on Scripture, that we know what God has said about whether or not any one of us is right before God. Summation of justification. Three realities. First, Christ is the basis of our justification. How are you and I as sinners declared right before a God who is holy? How can we be declared righteous when we are so not righteous? We have sin that pervades us. And there's nothing we can do to get rid of it. It has stained us. So how can you or I be declared right before God? We need someone else who is righteous to stand on our behalf. We need another's righteousness to be credited It's the language James is using, Paul uses, credited to us. And this is what Christ has done. He has lived the righteous life that you could not live. And then he died the death, sinful death, death, payment of sin. He died the death you deserve to die. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us in order that we might become the righteousness of God. Christ takes our sin upon himself and he takes his righteousness and he clothes us with it. So if I were to ask you, if we were having a one-on-one conversation right now and I were to ask you, How do you know you're right before God? If your answer would begin with because I then stop. If your answer would begin with because I did this or because I have done this then you may be missing the entire point of the Gospel. It doesn't matter what you've done if Christ hasn't done what He has done. How are you declared right before God? Because Christ. Because Christ lived the life I could not live and He died the death I deserve to die. That's the starting point. This is the basis of our justification. The work of Christ on a cross. Christ crucified. Basis of our justification. Now, Begs the question, he did this, well how is that applied in my life? Is it just automatic? When he died on the cross, everybody's declared right before God? Or is this something you have to be born into? Or is this something you need to do in order to to have that applied in your life? That leads to the second facet here. Christ is the basis of our justification. Faith is the means of our justification. Don't miss this. Faith is the anti-work. Faith is trust. It is submission, surrender. It is realization that there is nothing you can do to make yourself right before God. He must do this in you. And it's trusting Him to do this in you. It's trusting Him to cover over your sins by what He has done on the cross. It's trusting in Christ As the Savior of your sins and the Lord of your life. This is faith. Faith is not, faith is not intellectual assent. Faith is not, well, I believe Jesus died on the cross. Big deal. Demons believe that. Faith is a scripture, biblical picture of faith. It is a turning from self to trust in Christ. Have you trusted in Christ? This is the means of justification. Since we have been justified through faith, Paul says, we have peace with God. Through faith. This is not some one-time walk an aisle, sign a card, recite a prayer. This is a trust of your heart and your life into the hands of the only one who can save you. And it leads to this last part. Works are the evidence of our justification. Because when that kind of trust is there, faith bears fruit. That's what we've seen over the last two weeks. Does this mean that our works now become the basis of our justification? Absolutely not. Be careful. Don't go there. Christ's work, the basis, our faith in Him, the means. Our work, now we're talking here, works that are fueled by faith. Not fueled by the flesh that don't bring honor to God. Works that are fueled by faith that bring great glory to God. Works are evidence of justification. This is the whole picture in James 2. Abraham was willing to sacrifice his son. Why Because he believed. He believed, he had faith, and consequently, he was willing to sacrifice his son. Rahab believed. She had faith. And consequently, she risked it all. Works that flow from faith. The evidence of our justification. Now, two reminders that are all important. Number one, all three of these realities are only possible by the grace of God. They're only possible by the grace of God. Now obviously we think the first reality, sure, what Christ did on the cross, that's grace, but don't miss This, The second two realities are also totally fueled by grace, made only possible by grace. Think about faith. We were sinners, children of disobedience, children of wrath. There was nothing in us to draw us to God. We had turned away from him. We were dead in sin. How can those who are dead be given life? It must be given to them. You can't decide to come to life all on your own. There has to be grace that is given here. And this doesn't absolve man's responsibility. It's a whole other topic. But the picture is, this is the grace of God. And then in our works, in our obedience, this is living grace. It's grace at work in our lives. The way I picture it, and I want to be careful here because the illustration breaks down. So don't carry it too far. Just kind of leave it on the surface here. But... Imagine giving your child money for them to buy you a present. Did they really give you something? Yes, and not really. Because you're the one who made it possible. The reality is, any offering that I present before God that is pleasing to Him is only possible because of what He has already given and is at that moment giving to me. Grace, foundation of the basis, means, and evidence of justification. And then, second reminder, and I I want you to write this down, but then wait to start shuffling your things around and packing up, because I want you to let this soak in. This is where this whole deal has been leading to. All three of these realities are ultimately involved in judgment before God. Here's what I mean by that, here's what I believe Paul, James, the entire New Testament teaches. When you stand before God in heaven, talking final justification here, when it will be declared openly and finally Eternal destiny. All three of these are involved in this picture. By what basis will you or I ever enter into the presence of God for all of eternity in heaven? Not because I. Because Christ. The basis on that day for justification, just like it is today, the basis is what Christ has done on the cross and in the resurrection. Now, how did that become a reality in your life? F- Father, nothing in my hands I bring. Simply to the cross I cling. I don't have anything but what you have done for me. You have opened my eyes to my need for you. And by your grace, i have trusted in Christ to cover over my sin. Faith the means. And then in the background, not as the basis or the means, but in the background, there's fruit that shows this faith was there. This was not demonic intellectual belief. There's not perfection in the background, but there is the fruit of faith. Faith. That is there on that day so that what Paul has said is absolutely true in Romans 2? God on that day will give to each person according to what he has done. Second Corinthians chapter 5 we will all appear before the judgment seat of Christ and we will be given what is due on account of what we have done in the body. And I want to emphasize this because, this is pastorally speaking here, for us in this community, we are operating when, when someone dies. Now I'm not talking about anyone in particular at all, no one, individual, but when someone dies in our culture, community, here is littered with churches. When someone dies, even if there has been no fruit of faith in Christ, people's immediate conclusion is, surely they are with God in heaven. And it's not true. It's not true. Now this is why I emphasize I'm not talking about anyone in particular because no one of us knows the secrets of a man's heart and I am not anyone's eternal judge nor are you. God is the eternal judge. So certainly we're not going to make a commentary on anyone. They're definitely in hell. They're definitely in heaven. But God, who is the judge, has spoken and he has said, faith without works is dead and it doesn't save. And this is where, this is so hard because, so difficult, I pray the Holy Spirit would take this word and apply it in your life where it needs to be applied because I know there are men and women, students all across this room who know that Christ is the basis of your justification and you by faith have received Christ's work on your behalf and there is there's is fruit that's flowing from that in your work. It's not perfection it's in progress but there's fruit that's flowing from that and I want you to hear this and be encouraged, so encouraged. I want you to hear this and look forward with anticipation to that day. But on the other hand if you are here this morning and either you know you are not a Christian or you have thought you are a Christian But there is no fruit in your life of faith in Christ. The last thing I want you to do is feel encouraged looking forward to that day. I had no way wanting to just be a hellfire and damnation preacher for the sake of it. But more importantly, I do not want to deceive you. The Word of God says that Christ as the basis, faith as the means, works as the evidence of justification. If these things are not a reality in your life, then you have great reason to fear eternal wrath on that day. And I pray. Spirit of God, that those words would soak into your heart for the first time today. And you would see what Rahab saw, that God is sovereign, I am sinful, and I am deserving of His judgment, and I need Him to save me. And that right now, in your heart, for the first time, you would say, Christ, He has done the work for me, and He has. That you would say in your heart for the first time today, in your heart, yes, I, I need Christ to do this for me. I need him to change me from the inside out to cover over my sin and give me life. Life that will bear fruit to his glory in the days to come. And when you trust in him like that, you trust in him right now, in this holy moment, in this room, the God of the universe looks down upon your life and he says righteous in Christ. He declares you righteous by his grace at this moment. If You will trust in him you bow your heads with me? This is so important. We're not going to sing, stand. I want to invite you to bow your heads, close your eyes, and just focus for a moment on this question. Do you know that you are right before God? And if you do, if you do, then in this moment, I want to invite you to Be assured of that which has been declared of you based on Christ. Faith is the means. You would ask him to continue to bear fruit through your life. If you do not know that, then right now, in this moment, I want to invite you, I want to urge you to trust in Christ. To put aside your pride, to turn from yourself, To see what Christ has done, the work on your behalf on the cross, to cling to Him for the first time in your life. Not just to believe He's done it, but to cling to Him, to confess that He is the only Savior of your sins and the Lord over your life. And by the grace of God, He declares you righteous right now in this moment. His Word speaks that over you not about works that you can do to produce this it's works that now flow from this what he has done in your life that transforms your life for your good and his glory if you need to do that and i invite you to do that right now we hope you've enjoyed this week's episode of radical with david platt for more resources from david platt we invite you to visit radical.net